0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer, and it's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, A program we knew before we get started, and that is that, um, you know, please come and be with us on Christmas Eve. We're looking forward to that time, but I know, you know, the day after Christmas, thinking about church, and then the day after new year's but those those weeks where it feels like it's not so important for you to come and be a part of what's going on here are probably the most important times for you to come because that's when guys who normally don't get a chance to preach or preaching where, where where you know those that are doing it the most often are taking a break and you might think well that's why i don't come well, no don't that's the reason you should come you got to be tired of listening to me by now right so come and listen to those guys come and support come and encourage because churches make great pastors and preachers and i just wanted to say that and on that note you may not be aware but bud daniel who grew up uh in this church and is preparing for ministry he is preaching his very first sermon at trinity presbyterian church next sunday so be praying for bud and you actually don't lose any jesus points if you go to church there instead of here next sunday okay so, go and support him. Jonathan, his father in law, has to be here preaching because he's doing that for me. But uh, so it's important. let's let's make that a priority in the coming weeks, okay? Deal? Deal. All right. So we come this morning to Isaiah chapter sixty one, and this is the end of this long these long months of being in the prophet Isaiah. We've been going back through, during Advent, some of the more obvious passages that refer us to Jesus and to his coming at Christmas, and Isaiah 61 is one of those. He's been called the child, and the king, and the servant, and here he is referred to as the messenger, and so let's, let's look at this passage together. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, we're going to skip around, then 7 and 8, 10 and 11, just to break it up and make it a little easier to read this morning. If you want to follow along with me, you can in your Bible, it's printed for you. In the worship folder that you have, if you're at home, or if you're here, it'll be on the screen behind me or your screen there on your television. So let's read together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and will make an everlasting covenant with them. And then, again, the servant starts to speak. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Now there is a lot. Wow, this is a really, really foundational passage. It's quoted in the New Testament a few times, Uh, but for our purposes this morning, our theme this Advent week, and so the theme of this passage is really joy. At least that's the theme we're going to pull out. Christmas is good news of great joy for all people, and the joy spoken of here in Isaiah has started, but the sadness did not end when Jesus came on Christmas. The joy here started, but the sadness did not end, and it will not end until Jesus comes again. And we're told in the scriptures that his second coming will also be an occasion of great joy. It will be a wedding feast. We, you and I, in this moment today, as we gather here, we live in between those two realities in what we call the already and the not yet, and joy is a part of both. There is joy now, but an even greater joy coming Let me say it this way there is joy in the midst of the sadness that still clings to the world now until the day when there will be joy without sadness. Did you know there's a day coming where there will be joy without sadness? It's not here yet, but it's coming. And what that means is this joy, joy as you and I express it and experience it, joy is prophetic. You should write that down. (laughs) Joy is prophetic because the world can't see Jesus, but it can see our joy. And there's the gospel message. And then there's the gospel countenance of the church. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's what we claim to be true. And then then there's the way what we claim to be true shows up on our face. And those have to match. And so here's the question this morning, how's your joy? Rate your joy. i got to be honest with you. I'm not doing so well if I start to ask that question of myself. It's been a hard week, and I don't know if it has been for you. But we need to ask that question. How's your joy? Rate your joy. Because that's what we're going to do as we go through this text. As we see here, again, the theme joy. uh, As we walk through together, gosh, there's so much. I had a hard time kind of working on my way through it all. But you're going to see the problem and the person and the process and the power of joy because it's all here and that's even just a small little bit of, of the beauty of this text but let's just walk through those four headings this morning talking about the theme of joy the problem in the person in the process and the power starting with the problem with joy or why is joy so hard why do we seem to have such a hard time with this isaiah before he talks about joy talks about what life really feels like he describes real life he says look there he says it's ashes and devastations and ruin and grief and mourning and so the very first thing that we have to say is joy whatever we mean by that word isn't fake or out of touch with reality it doesn't deny the sadness that is a part of our experience of the world what it does is it puts an expiration date on that sadness While at the same time being brutally honest about what the world is really like, what it feels like. So you see devastation, ruin, ashes, grief. But note at the same time the theme of joy. So verse 3, there's the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Verse 7, it says they shall have everlasting joy. Verse 10, the servant himself, the messenger says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. And so there is joy. There is joy, not because the prophet is wrong and the world is not actually ashes and devastation and grief. There is joy because it won't always be that way. And that's why joy is so hard, because the, it is the promise for tomorrow. It's a promise for tomorrow, but not necessarily for today. And what has to happen is the future has to make its way, it has to find its way back into the present for you to experience the kind of joy that God means to give you here. Now, it's ironic I don't want to ruin this for anybody, but it's ironic that we sing Joy to the World at Christmas because it's not a Christmas song. Right? What? Joy, Joy to the World is not a Christmas song. It's an Advent song. It's a song about the second coming of Jesus. Sin and sorrow are still growing. Thorns still infest the ground, but he's coming again. And when he comes again, that's when he'll pull the thorns out. That's when he'll pull sin up by the root. And that's the world's joy. Not only that he's come, but that ultimately that he's coming again. And we have a hard time not skipping Advent, though, and going right to Christmas. And I think that's right, because the child in Bethlehem was God himself coming into the world. Which means heaven is no longer there. Wherever there is, heaven is here now too. That's what Christmas means, but it's not all the way here. It's not here in a way that takes away all the sadness, and that's what makes Advent so important, I think, that we need to learn not to rush past the bad stuff to get to the good stuff, to figure out how to have joy, not just when all the bad stuff is over, but in it while you wait for the good to come, however long it takes to get here. Flannery O'Connor described sentimentalism, very helpful way i think she said it's arriving at the happily ever after too soon be honest do you ever watch a movie and you fast forward through all the bad parts to get to the good parts you watch a rom-com and you know it's the breakup scene and you're like can you still fast forward you can you can like tap your apple remote and like get through that stuff right because we want to get to the good stuff as soon as we poss- as fast as we possibly can. But that is Flair O'Connor calls that sentimentalism. And Christmas has become far too sentimental for me personally. Christianity has too, though. Sentimentalism is superficial. That's the problem. Joy, joy is located in the depths. C.S. Lewis called it serious business. Joy. That's almost Christmas. And we have a few days left. And in those few days, I wonder if it would not benefit us to take sin and evil seriously. To take a moment just to do that. To renounce the easy consolations of artificial joy. And to acknowledge that the things that really make us sad. And to not run away from them. To not medicate ourselves against them. But to stare them down. Tish Harrison Warren has a great line in her new book, which is about vulnerability and lament. It's wonderful. Prayers in the night. She says this, she says, Feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. And I think that's right. Feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. She goes on, she says, It's the cost even of holiness. Christians have to let ourselves be a people who mourn. It's part of the deal. It's the defining characteristic of those Jesus called blessed. So listen, if if you refuse to let yourself be sad, the result won't be joy. If you refuse to let yourself be sad... The result won't be joy. It'll be emotionally dead. You'll be emotionally dead. Emotional deadness. If you bury your grief, it will eventually demand a hearing. If you don't face it directly and stare it down, it's going to come out sideways in ways that aren't recognizable as grief always. Explosive anger, uncontrollable anxiety, compulsive shallowness, addiction, bitterness. Listen, just better to acknowledge it. And that's, that's the first step to joy. And it's why we have such a problem because it's hard to do that. But secondly see the problem of joy there but then I want to introduce you to the person of joy because that really is the key to the text the person of joy because though we were meant though we were meant to be stewards of the world's joy and I like that phrase to be stewards of the world's joy and though that was really what God meant for us we are often instead the cause of its sadness the world is broken and beyond repair at least by human hands as we read but there is one who is worthy and only one one who is worthy, who is strong enough and wise enough and patient enough to, to, and full of joy himself enough to fill the whole world with his joy. And Isaiah here calls him the messenger or the anointed one. And that phrase anointed one means Messiah, the Messiah who can anoint us. He is anointed and he can anoint us, verse 3, with the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The spirit of God is on him and his spirit can be in you to give you his joy. And so we're faced with a very hard truth, and that is that we bring the ashes and the ruin and thus the grief to life. He is the one who brings the beauty and the joy. In Luke chapter 4, you may be aware that Jesus began his public ministry by reading from this text. It was his inaugural address. If you use that imagery, you know what an inaugural address is, right? It's someone who's coming into power, who's saying, this is what my my leadership, this is what my administration is going to be all about, and they set the trajectory in their inaugural address, and this is what Jesus chose as his. He is the anointed one. He came not just preaching good news. He came himself as the good news that is able to bind up the brokenhearted and comfort the grieving and transform all of our ashes to beauty through a couple of things, through a revelation in him of God's love for us and ultimately a powerful reversal of both sin and death. That it really is the good news. If you want to boil it down, what Isaiah says here is that the good news for us this morning is that in Jesus, there is a revelation of God's love and also a reversal of sin and death. Let's look at each of those, okay, as we come to the text in a little more detail here. First, I want you to see that, that there is a revelation of God's love. Verse 2, it says he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, that word is the Lord's grace and the day of the vengeance of our God. So you have both grace and judgment there, and both are on God's agenda. Our sin demands a response from God his justice, but he also has a heart of mercy. He's forgiving. So how do you have both at the same time? And that really is the gospel message. For you to really faithfully proclaim the gospel message it is a message of both God's grace and his justice. How do you have both at the same time? Well, the Bible says that the solution to how those things that seem to be opposites can stand there side by side is that Jesus in his death has rectified those two realities jesus died for his people and his death was our judgment day it satisfied god's justice so that god could then show grace that he treated jesus as our sins deserved so that we could be forgiven and loved for his sake that's what that's what this good news is all about but notice this is really important there in verse two it says it is the year of god's grace but the day of god's vengeance isn't that good? I mean, vengeance is a priority of God, but it's like he only focuses on it for a day. Grace is a priority too, but he takes the whole year to celebrate it. It's such a priority that he focuses on it for a whole year in comparison to the one day of his judgment. Now, there's, there's mystery here, and I, I don't want to make too much of this. I want to acknowledge that, but the text suggests, and not just this text, I want to say something, and this is maybe controversial, but that's okay. We can, come, we can talk about it later, but let me say it like this. I think this, the text suggests that God is far more exuberant with his grace than he is with his justice. Luther said that grace is God's day job and judgment's a side gig. He did. Can you believe that? Luther said that. Martin Luther said that. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards called God's vengeance his strange work, not his natural work. One more thing here. When Jesus read from this text, and this is, this, you, you might want to look at, at uh, Luke chapter 4 just to verify this because it's so good and it's so obvious. But when Jesus read from this text, he read word for word until he got to the phrase, the day of God's vengeance. And when he got to that part, he just dropped it. He dropped that line. It's not coincidence. The commentators also make the same point. Jesus was saying intentionally. He, didn't, he only talked about God's grace. He didn't talk about God's judgment. Why? They say Jesus was saying something like this. I am the one that Isaiah 61 talked about, and I have come to face the day of vengeance for you so that you can have God's grace. And if you believe in him, there is no more vengeance. That vengeance part has been just wiped through with a, with a sharpie. It's not there anymore. It's not relevant to you. It doesn't apply to you anymore. If you believe in him, there's no more day of vengeance. Not for you. There's only the year of the Lord's favor. It's a revelation of God's love for us. But secondly, not only that, but also we see that the good news is the promise of a reversal of sin and death. At the heart of the text is the word instead. You ought to go back through and take a pencil or something and circle how many times the word instead comes up. It's a lot. I don't even know. I didn't count. Eugene Peterson says, instead is a gospel word. Instead. It's the language of substitution first. So you see, in Jesus, it is the year of the Lord's grace, not the day of vengeance, because Jesus died instead of his people. He bore God's wrath instead of it falling on us. He experienced the soul-crushing darkness of God forsaken us on the cross instead of leaving us to experience it in hell. He lived a life of perfect obedience for us. And God is pleased to accept all who put their faith in him and declare them righteous in him instead of demanding that they meet the standard on their own. Jesus obeyed instead of you. He died instead of you. Are you with me? You tracking? Are you alive? That, whoo, that's good news, right? I mean, that... I know, it's a Presbyterian church. Just making sure. There's an old hymn that says, Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I have not died. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. That's saving faith. But that word, instead, is not just the language of, of uh, substitution. It's also the language of transformation. Because Jesus lived and died instead of you Here's what this text says, Jesus, because he lived and died instead of you, your life can now be beauty instead of ashes, and gladness instead of mourning, and praise instead of faintness. See how this works? I mean, the same language picks up again in verse 7, look there. Instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of dishonor, rejoicing. Instead, 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 instead. In the whole, it's a reversal of sin and death. Sin is alienation from God, but in Jesus, there is no condemnation. And Paul says, nothing can separate you from God's love. Now, what does that do if that truth starts to come home to your heart? What if you really see the insteadness of the gospel, Jesus in his dying love for you, knowing that because he died for you now, nothing can separate you from God's love? What happens to a person who really believes that and starts to take it into their soul? Well, for one, it can heal your heart. Which is exactly what it says here, verse one, that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. But the true, the true fatal heartbreak, the fatal wound is the loss of God, but the gospel is the good news that we get God back. And knowing him and loving him and being known and loved by him can fill you with love and joy and peace so that it mends your wounded heart back together. But also it says it can set you free. Look, verse one, Jesus came to proclaim liberty and to open the prison doors I mean you can be confident and full of faith instead of doubting verse two because it brings comfort that's what that word comfort means that you're that you're full of faith you're confident in God's love for you you're you're assured of his love towards you instead of doubting and full of unbelief you can live with joy and praise verse three instead of grief and faintness you don't have to be barely holding on so many people are barely holding on you don't have to be barely holding on. You can mount up with wings like eagles and soar. That's what Isaiah says. Full of joy and life and hope and peace. You can have that kind of transformation. The other thing is this, that though it can happen to you, it can happen to a greater degree than just to you, that the whole world now bends towards resurrection. That that word instead means that, that the old things are being replaced by God's new things, that even death now has an expiration date because Jesus is alive, and he is breathing in and breathing out the air of the new creation. And so the end of every story is resurrection, like the phoenix Who is reborn from the ashes. God is bringing beauty out of the ruin of the world. Which means he can transform your day today into some kind of wonderful tomorrow. No matter what you're facing, there is always some instead that you can hope for. Because of the person of joy. But third, let's keep going. You see the problem in the person... But notice the process of joy here as well. And here is something that we've got to just make ourselves aware of that it is possible. Though we've talked about all these things, you can lose your joy. You can also, whatever joy you have, you can get more of it. So joy fluctuates. You can grow in joy. You can decrease in joy. And let me give you an example of both. So first, the Galatian Christians, if you're familiar with those people, they... Uh, Paul wrote to them in the New Testament, and they embraced his gospel of grace. But eventually, what happened to those people is they started to turn back to effort, to obeying the rules, to, to striving, to legalism and moral, you know, moral legalism, wearing themselves out to keep all of the rules and try to make themselves acceptable to God. And the apostle Paul wrote a letter to them to confront them, and he had all kinds of mean things to say to them uh, and to really try to help them see how things had gone wrong in their hearts. But in, at the middle of the, of the uh, letter, in chapter 4 he just asked this question he said listen friends what happened to your joy because he knew that something had gone wrong with them because they had lost their joy joy is a diagnostic of spiritual health and you can lose it it can fluctuate it can it can fluctuate down you can lose it but the other thing is is you can actually get more of it it can fluctuate up and Saint Augustine. If you read uh, his confessions, he became a Christian through an increase of his joy. He was in a crisis of faith for a long time where the reality of his heart was he wasn't ready to become a Christian because he could not figure out how to find more joy in God than in his sexual exploits. Until a supernatural work of God occurred in his heart... And all of a sudden, he felt more joy in God than in any other thing in his life. And here's how he wrote about it. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. And so joy, you see, is the key to sanctification, to growing in your faith, not effort. Not effort. If you're